Welcome to Unpack This, the podcast where academic misfits go to unload their shit. I am Joshu, one of your hosts, and I am Constance Bailey, the other host. Hello, listeners. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Unpack This. This is Joe, and I just want to give you a heads up that the audio on this episode is less than ideal. As we've mentioned, perhaps a little too often, Constance and I are winging this in the margins of our non-existent spare time, and we're still figuring out some things in terms of equipment, in terms of recording while on the road, and so on. So at some point in this episode, Constance's microphone switches between three different inputs, but everything should still be audible. I promise that we are learning as we go, and we'll provide better quality audio in the future. Thank you for sticking with us on this adventure, and we hope that you still enjoy this conversation, which we very much did. So we derailed our plans for today because Constance would like to talk about homecoming. So I'm, I'm going to let you introduce this topic and why it's on your mind. So, yes, and, and thank you for embracing that, you know, just spontaneity and, you know, it's like, What's the point of being a side project if you got to do everything by the book, right? So <laughs> I should say that uh, this weekend is is homecoming for Alcorn State University. It's Alcorn, not Alcorn people. I don't understand. You know, always has one L, but people insist on whatever. Anyway, that's a whole other episode. But so I wish I was at homecoming. I, I cannot... Just logistics and time do you know won't allow me to attend, but you know it is the celebration leading up to the homecoming game, I should say. Um, so that the whole week really is considered homecoming. But uh, you know it's just near and dear to my heart at at my undergrad institution at Alcorn, especially more so than my graduate institution, which is quite ironically credited with with starting the homecoming tradition. So. Yeah, I'll give a little bit of history and, you know, just to cite my source, this is coming largely from, you know, other than my just random ramblings, a lot of it is coming from vice.com and their piece on the history of homecoming. So it's a few years old now from 2015, but by Eliza Brooke. So one of the things that Brooke does in the way of just kind of giving the, um, you know, history of homecoming it, which this is kind of interesting, right? Because this is a very literal etymology. I don't actually know that this is the etymology of the word. But uh, one of the things that she points out is that it got its start on colleges, college campuses as a fall celebration of the first football game of the season. For the most part, you know, it's a time when alumni return to their alma mater, right? Um, most early homecomings date date back to the turn of the century, there's a little bit of debate, but uh, there is a general consensus that the University of Missouri, uh, in quote unquote, invented homecoming back in 1911 when the athletic director had the idea to invite alumni to come back for the University of Kansas game, which is a big, there's a huge rivalry there. But yeah, so so that, you know, it's been, I've seen it in several places. And of course, I went to Mizzou for graduate school, and it is one of their claims to fame. They will, they will not let you forget that homecoming started there. Uh, let's see. So Trivial Pursuit, Jeopardy, also recognized Mizzou as the originator of the homecoming tradition. 
uh, but Baylor also lays claim to it. So it's kind of interesting. Um, there's, you know, so there's you know, different people trying to claim it, but basically, um, and it used to, again, you know, as the, the history indicates, used to be kind of like the first or one of the early football games. I think now, at least in my anecdotal observation, institutions want it to be a, a, you know, it's a celebratory and festive occasion. So at least on the schedules I've seen, oftentimes schools will pick a team that they know they can can beat. <laughs> so especially if the school doesn't have a very good or reputable athletic program, then it tends to be the one game that you know you're going to win because you want alumni to be you know, to be happy. So, yeah, so that's a little bit of background. How much do you know? Did you know about homecoming? Do you care? (laughs) So that was mostly new information for me. I guess, one, it seems tethered to football culture in a way. And football was definitely not really a thing at my undergraduate institution. Uh, So I, I went to Rice University in Houston, Texas, where to try and coerce students to go to a football game, they sometimes strategically shut down our dining halls and only serve dinner out of the football stadium to try to like up attendance, which in, in which case we actually just went off campus and got food. Um, so it, it's not a huge part of, of my experience. The other thing is that I, I think this is inter- an interesting intersection of our research interests because you have the Black Collegiate in popular culture and I have Homing, which at least in my book is, is the name I'm giving to the ways queer Asian Americans story to reveal the social and historical scripts that have shaped their conditions of exclusion and or belonging. So we're both thinking about conditions of belonging, you largely in collegiate life, but I, I'm also working through that particularly with Asian Americans' foundational roots in campus-based organizing. And and so I've, I've always felt this troubled relationship with academic institutions, both as this site where I've found so much safe harbor, but also places where I've never felt fully at home, like, you know, like the queer I am. Um, I've, I've never fully felt like I could fit into these institutions and often also experience them as, as places where I was never made to fit. Rice is is very remains very fond in my memory but even there it didn't feel like i was a part of the institution so much as i had a a little cluster of of people with whom i navigated the institution so i guess that whole like coming back to this place where you are a part of its culture has never been i don't know a part of my like life i've never been to homecoming possibly while I attended schools, uh, certainly never since I've, I've graduated from them. And I, I have never even thought, you know, I've never even thought about the root of the word. I, it just, it was this event that happened sometimes that I never paid attention to. So I guess uh, my question for you is, do you usually go to homecoming? What is in it for you? Why do you find it? Uh, what is the gratification you get from it? Oh, wow. So, so yeah, that's so it's really interesting that you pointed out that intersection of our research interests. I do often think we do things that are very adjacent, but you know, we're just sort of passing like ships in the night. But yeah, that's so that's pretty fascinating. So, um, I should say that, you know, homecoming as a, um, it, actually, th- that article didn't mention it, but I would assume it's like a portmanteau word, right? So, this idea of coming home, right? It, so, so there are church homecomings, and then of course high school. You know, 
the homecoming dance is is sort of a bigger thing, you know, and I'm thinking about that now because I have a high school kid. But I, I think, you know, the homecoming football thing, like in, in theory, it's kind of the same, you know, like an early, you know, an early season football game. And then there's now uh, a way, you know, a sort of a commercialized like, hey, spend money on these dresses and, and suits and stuff and, and come to this, this. So do this other thing. But so. So back to kind of what's in it for me, or actually let me backtrack. So in terms of Mizzou um, and in terms of not feeling like, you know, a sense of home that, you know, I probably spent most of my adult life. I did, I think, spend most of my adult life in Columbia, Missouri. I, you know, was mentored by wonderful professors there. It never occurs to me to go to homecoming. I did certainly, I'm sure I went uh, because I am a football, you know, for all that I have critiques of it and systematically and it's problematic in a lot of ways, uh, a lot of Southern, I would say, I was going to say Southern Black women, but probably Southern women, whatever. Anyway, I watch football. So I certainly enjoyed the games and I attended. And there was, at the time when I at least first went to graduate school, there was a very robust Black, um, black well, Black Alumni Association too, I think, but uh, black faculty staff organization, which really helps with mentoring graduate students, and they really facilitated and encouraged cultural events. And there was a time, what I call like the great black exodus, where where Dr. Carol Anderson, Dr. Robert Weems, scholars who you know I actually probably never took courses with because they were in they were historians, but you know who I got to interact with socially. Dr. Bob Williams, who who coined the term Ebonics, was around for a while. I don't even know if he was teaching classes or if he just was hanging around. But I would see him socially. So the cultural milieu was great, right? And so homecoming was a part of that. And then, of course, there were some very um, you know publicly and nationally. Uh, you recognized a racist event. So there were cotton balls like strewn on the lawn of the Black Culture Center and some more things that probably happened during my tenure that I don't even remember. And so, you know, it just left, I think, the institutional response to, to some of those things just kind of left a distaste in my mouth. I won't presume to speak for other students, but and but also we didn't have that robust Black faculty staff, student or whatever organization that facilitated some of those relationships, right? And so uh, it, it just kind of, yeah, so so it wasn't the same. Let's let me say that. And so, you know, for me, homecoming at my undergrad institution, I don't get to go very often because I have children and my son's marching season coincides with with football season and it's also expensive i prefer to spend my money to go to like barbados and stuff (laughs) so not necessarily to rural mississippi but i like the idea of seeing old friends seeing my sorority sisters i mean one of the things that is happening with me in this particular moment is that i'm really immersed in a course that i teach called the black collegian in popular culture which is also the subject of the manuscript. And so we are talking about, we just watched Drumline and I'm like, I don't hate Nick Cannon, but he's a mess. But the showcasing of Black college bands, I was talking to my students trying to um, give give them some distinguishing features and talk about when they originated. It, it was a platform for Black composers. And I just have this love. And I had uh, a cousin who was in the band and just, uh, and I was in a sorority. So I had the kind of quintessential romanticized, stereotypical Black college experience. 
that overshadows for me that like I also had some in some ways some crappy experiences, right? I I came in preseason when band camp was going on, getting up when it was dark in the mornings. Or was like I don't know, our dormitory didn't have like hot water. There was some definite material comforts that we were missing, but I think that for most people, we look back on our relative youth. We have nostalgic and fond memories. So for me, some of my best friends, you know, and lasting friendships were forged at Alcorn. And I have three brothers. I don't have any sisters. So joining the sorority, you know, um, and Black Greek letter organizations that really gave me or at least contributed to this feeling of sisterhood that I, you know, attached to the universities. And there are parties and old people want to go have fun too. Like, you know, (laughs) so I like to relive my squandered youth. That's what homecoming allows me to do, Joe. So so I'm curious, do you think you would have anywhere close to this sort of relationship with homecoming and with your institutions if you hadn't had the sort of stereotypical romanticized Black college experience? Yeah, so so I have friends, and actually I won't name names if if this podcast ever does blow up. But, but he's a rhetorician, so so you all probably cross paths mm-hmm. at that <laughs> But you know, he I think he jokingly, if it's not him, then it's another friend of mine that that calls it like Shakedown University. You know, so so his experience is very you know different, and I do get it. You know, so not everybody, and even I was talking to a cousin who was in the band, and I was like, "Don't you wish we were at homecoming this weekend?" She was like, "No." <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> but you know, for her, the so the band director that you know, we we sometimes get trapped in these particular cultural moments. I know I do. And the band director that she trained under, I think he passed away. Um, it's been a while now. But so for her, it doesn't feel the same. And to me, I'm on the outside looking in. So to me, the band, you know, the program. I think after some initial probably, you know, transfer of power or, you know, initial transitional leadership issues seems to have rebounded well. Their formations and field shows look great to my mind. What do I know? I'm not in the band. (laughs) They sound really good to me, but I'm projecting. So, so yeah, so my experience, yeah, I do recognize that it's very different. But what I will say, though, is for a, a school that I think at at peak, maybe when I was there, had 3,500 students, I will tell you that I'm, if I had to guess, I would say there are like 10,000 people. No, they, I, don't, I don't have to guess. They're usually pre-COVID. Now, I don't know what the COVID numbers will look like. But uh, our stadium, I think, seated 10 or 15,000. And so it's always, you, there's there's no room in the stadium. People are seated. So, so somebody, <laughs> you know, has had, I think, I mean, everybody to some degree has had it's easier to form cliques. It's easier to feel a sense of community. It's easier with a small, with an institution that small. I think my son's high school has like 3000 people. So, so I like literally not even hyperbole. I'm I'm almost positive. It has, if not 3000, then 2,900. So, so at a school that small, it's, it's easy to feel like you're a part of a family. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, there are exceptions to the rule, but, but I certainly think, you know, by and large, uh, most people, you know, they, 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 it feels like home, man. I don't know. So, so here's the interesting thing. My undergrad is also very small. Rice's undergraduate population when I was there was under 3000. Um, and I mean, we had, we boasted a, 
ridiculously privileged school. It was a six to one student to teacher ratio or something like that. And I am, I'm very attached to it. I moving back to Texas felt a lot like coming home. I brought my partner to Houston. I made her go around campus with me and was flooded with that sort of familiar nostalgia sort of thing. So there's an attachment to the place and there's an attachment to my classmates, some of whom I got to see while I was in town, but there's something about the collective that I do not feel attached to. And, and maybe it's like the difference between the extrovert and introvert thing. I saw there's, there's a tweet going around that's like a large group of people is called a nope. And that, and that is something that I resonate with. Um, yeah. But it's also maybe, I, I just, something about the institution at large has never, I've never felt a huge part of institutions maybe as part of it. Um, the other interesting parallel too, though, is that for as close as you could get to a majority Asian institution, Rice is probably, outside of California, Rice is probably it. So there are a ton of Asian Americans there. And okay, this rant is probably way too long for this episode and belongs totally somewhere else, but Asian American identity in higher ed is is really complicated, right? We are overrepresented in some fields, in some areas. And, and when I say we there, it's a very sp- specific uh, group of Asian Americans with specific backgrounds in terms of socioeconomics, in terms of education, even in terms of region, um, and in terms of fields as well. And so Asian Americans already in the United States are, are this highly disparate group, this group with the largest, you know, uh, income and educational gap. Uh, and so that, that category is often used to uh, exclude, to overlook a lot of the needs and experiences of particular Asian Americans, um, which is to say that uh, even, even if that space is a majority Asian American, it's not necessarily a politicized space or one that uh, thinks uh, critically about the ways Asian American identity is operating uh, in that space. And that's not to say that they're... they're wasn't Asian American politics on my campus, uh, more so that I at the time did not yet feel Asian American, which had something to do with my queerness and the ways that that intersected with racial identity and the fact that I didn't have a vocabulary uh, for that yet. And wouldn't until I found queer Asian American communities. And for those, I actually had to go to California for a while. So I, I don't know. I'm trying to think about what it is about our positionalities, what it is just about our personalities in terms of our orientation towards crowds that has sort of informed our very different orientations to whether or not we we feel like and coming back to the, the institution of or these like, like official the Atlanta airport formal celebrations familiar of, because I fly of community in and, and out of there uh, whether those on a fairly like regular basis. So yeah, that's a really good Flying point. I mean, so, so I will say, a large group of people is called a nope, but that's very good. So here's what I would say. Entirely too uh, you're right. You, certainly, you know, extrovert versus introvert for sure. I think large, large groups of unfamiliar people bother, so not bother, like they overwhelm me, they make me anxious, they make me feel very vulnerable. Even and if they I don't know the people, I'm okay to fly into it's Atlanta still because feel I'm in like Atlanta home all the time. Because all corners and very that close feels to like a second home. There's a good likelihood that I'm going to know um, some of the attendees at homecoming just by virtue of them being you know, local residents. Um, or just the, again, familiarity of the campus, South Mississippi, and that community. So it always feels like home, even when 
I may not know. It's almost a feeling I I think of someone who feels claustrophobic. I feel like the onset of a panic attack because it's very disconcerting for me. And the other thing is that Rice is in Houston, and Houston is an amazing city. Alcorn is in southwest Mississippi in a, it was it was Lorman when I went there, but then it got renamed to like Alcorn State, Mississippi or something. But that is the only thing there. And as opposed to like Midwest college towns where there's a town that springs up around it, that is not the case. <laughs> so so when the, when the late Steve McNair used to play for, for Alcorn, we would park on what was called the stretch and you would have to, it's like, it's like I think it's seven miles or someone said six miles. I don't know, but you'd have to walk miles into campus to, to see him play. And at the time there was, it was like a high school football stadium, literally. Like I think, you know, it, the, the, the nicer stadium we have, which actually might see like 20,000 or something, which is small compared to like a SEC school, but for, you know, for um, our athletic conference, which we don't have to go into that today to blow the people's minds, but, but the SWAC conference, <laughs> Uh, is, you know, it's a pretty, pretty decent stadium. So, or pretty large stadium. So anyway, so it's, it's a very familiar space, lots of familiar people, but also it was the community so insular because we're isolated from everything. So you end up, even though I was 30 minutes from home, you don't end up going home all that often, you know, not, you know, to be 30 minutes away, right? You don't go home every weekend because, you, you create your own fun. You're in the middle of, you know, uh, an agricultural space, right? And so, you know, for students who study in that, I think they probably, you know, fared well because that's a strength. Um, but so they're like cow pastures, you know, <laughs> there are lots of, it's, it's just extremely isolated. So I do think that sense of like self-sufficiency and, and, and insularity, you know, all of those things like just contributed to our sense of identity, maybe in a way that is, you know, kind of, I think, uh, maybe distinguishes itself from other, yeah, and it could just be like the HBCU experience too. I don't, I don't know. I think a little bit of everything. I, I hadn't thought about that particular element about, you know, schools in more isolated areas becoming their own communities necessarily, whereas Rice is literally in downtown Houston. You get on the light rail and you, you're in theaters and museums, and that was where I spent a lot of my time playing around when I was in college. Um, but I think, so So what's fascinating to me is that having grown up in, in cities, Phoenix, then Houston, and coming from an immigrant family, I, I never saw these places as places that I would be staying, which is kind of unfortunate because I really love Houston and Phoenix uh, after having left them. But be, maybe because of my parents' own trajectory, it was always a sort of given to me that I would be leaving these places. I don't know why. It just seemed like... I would want to, well, partially cultural conflict, partially fraught feelings of home, but also, you know, would want to venture out into other places. So I guess part of that uh, is uh, informs my 
lack of attachment uh, to those particular sites. Uh, but also, when I think about homecoming, I'm thinking about the ways that academic institutions try to position themselves as sort of metaphors for home and metaphors for family, sometimes in ways that are that are really generative and that form senses of community, and sometimes in ways that are particularly toxic and demand types of labor or create senses of alienation for those who do not participate in, in the dominant culture of that institution. So I guess for me, as much as I, I'm really attached to the notion of home, as much as I'm really grateful for uh, the sorts of forged family and little enclaves that have gave me senses of home, I'm also really always aware of the ways that home is also used coercively. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, even think about, you know, when you think about uh, tenure and promotion, like your tenure home, but to what degree is an analogy between your department or an academic unit like home? <laughs> Zero. It's <laughs> 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 the antithesis of home, <laughs> probably. So, yeah, I do think that's a really good point. And I do think, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Because so I, I feel, oh gosh, I feel like it's a whole other other episode to unpack because one of the things that I do feel and then that I have said is that academic institutions, and a part of me wants to say with the exception of minority serving institutions or HBCUs, but I don't even necessarily know that that's true, but that oftentimes there is this adversarial relationship between between community, however we define that, right? And the institution in ways that, you know, don't serve either well, but but I think also that are sort of fueled by, you know, the, the ideas of like elitism and um, just uh, this discrediting of other types of knowledge that is not quantifiable and that is not sort of data-driven. And, you know, I like data as much as the the next person, you know, but, but, you know, you and I know that there's value in qualitative research in the same way that there is in quantitative. And so I think sometimes there's this perception that, you know, institutions are these hostile spaces and not even just perception. I shouldn't say that. Like sometimes institutions are hostile spaces for, for first generation and people of color and trans people and, and, you know, any, anyone who doesn't kind of fit the you know, the, the reason why, why colleges and universities work. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So at any rate, um, so, so to not have that feeling, you know, when I think about an institution really makes me, you know, want to have both a symbolic and literal return, mostly symbolic because <laughs> they're very, there's very, the, the, the literal return is infrequent. So. Does did your relationship to your formal former institutions change when you became an academic? Like, did your view of those experiences were are they colored by the fact that this is now your profession? Oh, that's a I don't know. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, yes and no. I would say yes and no. I mean, I, I think even like my first semester, one of my first academic conferences, I was talking about like the conflict between community and and the university in Gloria Naylor's Mama Day. So I was like one of my first, so I was kind of sort of fresh out of, of college. And I thought, you know, why are the academics like assholes and why are they pretentious and why are they, you know, all of these things. And, you know, black women are the, the source of this sage wisdom. And I'm like, well, black women are amazing, 
But in some ways, is this is this a little bit, you know, are, are we being gaslit here? Like, what's going on here? And so that really made me want to interrogate that more. And in one way or another, I've been kind of interrogating that same idea, just just calling it different things for like the last 20 years or something. So, yeah, so I don't know. But I mean, I do. Here's what I will say, which I guess, what is it, proverbially or something? I don't know if it's a proverb or what it is, but this idea that absence makes the heart grow fonder, I know for sure is is at work here because if I were there this weekend, I would be complaining about the shit parking, (laughs) (laughs) the lack of cell phone reception, the lack of... (laughs) Listen, it's it's always better in your 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 memory. Like that's it's always better. So, <laughs> but you know, but but that doesn't. I don't necessarily think that would negate you know the 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 fun or diminish the experience, right? I would be shit complaining about it, but I would also you know still be you know having you know lots of fun in the midst of you know like sort of grumbling and being like get off my lawn, grumpy old lump, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I I guess I ask because when you're an undergraduate, you don't see a lot of the sort of behind the scenes of the institution and how it's working. And so sort of retrospectively, I have a new lens on those experiences to think, oh, that's what that faculty member was going through. Or that was actually, I I had an English professor who very generously independent studied with me just because I wanted to, like, you know, he taught a course that I wanted to take that wasn't being offered. And he just let me go to his office basically for a full course time every week to take the course one-on-one, which one can only happen at a school that small, but also two, I can't imagine faculty being able to add just random full-time independent studies to their, to their, like, that was a really generous thing that he did that I totally didn't understand the cost of what at the time that I was there. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. And I mean, then that's even more so the case at, you know, an institution like Alcorn where the faculty are going to be, you know, probably have a, well, not just, you know, Alcorn because it's an HBCU, but it more so that it's a small institution and that it's a, you know, it's a teaching institution. And so they, they already have a heavy teaching and burden and grading burden. And, you know, I've had people, you know, mentor me or help me, you know, with my, um, what do you call it? Your essay for your college applications and things that they didn't have to do, but that, that like, even though I wasn't a first generation college student, my mom, she had a degree, but she, she worked, um, she she wasn't working in her field, so she didn't have. And even if she had been, like most of my family are educated. Most of the, my family members are educators, so that is a very busy life. That's a seven to three or seven to four job. You're always on, and you know when you're trying to take care of the material reality, you know realities for children. You don't necessarily. I mean, I didn't think I'm a college professor, and I didn't. It didn't occur to me to explain to my son about like college applications. So when I'm like asking him multiple times, hey, are we signing up for, you know, the PSAT? We got to start registering you for all of these tests. And, you know, and I'm asking him about colleges, you know, basically harassing him. He was like, well, I mean, I don't know. Nobody's talked to me about that. Like, why should I go to college? I was like, what? <laughs> and and I wasn't like, oh my gosh, what do you mean? Why should you go to college? I, I told him, I, I'm, I'm happy if you want to be a carpenter or an electrician. You don't have to go to college for me. 
he is not interested in being a carpenter or an electrician. So I suspect that he has to go to college because I think the things that he wants to do in life, but, but just saying to him, well, depending on what you would like to do in life, and you don't have to know it yet, but, but many things will require a college degree, particularly because, you know, of your interest, then, you know, that is why you should, you know, research some of the schools or that's why when they sign you up or ask you if you're interested in a virtual college tour, like that's why that's important. And it just never occurred to me because I'm busy teaching or researching or taking him to band practice or <laughs> doing things with the other the other kids. And so I just can't imagine. And I have a lot more flexibility than than my professors did at, at my undergrad, right? At least in terms of my time constraints, but but so just taking that extra time is really really valuable. So I do think that's probably something that Rice, you know, um, gave you, or or you know, having someone who would who was willing to do that in a way that that I'm really thankful that I didn't go to a really large institution, you know, for my first experience. And I, you know, if I had to call. I don't advise high school kids, thankfully, but, but if I had to, you know, I would say, you know, try to go to a smaller school if you can, uh, where you can feel, you know, more, even if you don't feel like it's home, you are less intimidated. You are, you feel that you can talk to someone. You don't feel overwhelmed and get kind of swallowed by the institution. So, yeah. So I, some of my lifelong friends also came from and, and, you know, came from college and remain in my life. And I, having come from a school that small, was really shocked when I got to grad school and it was Penn State and it was gigantic. And I had my undergraduate students there when I was teaching freshmen who were feeling really lost. And I felt this sort of sense of sadness and also discovery of my own privilege, having had a much more intimate freshman year experience. So I'm curious since both of us came from that sort of small, intimate college experience, is that the sort of place that you envisioned yourself working when you first set about going this, going into this profession? Yeah, so that's a so that's a good question, right? Uh, it's interesting too, right? How I've had, you know, different friends based on my my personality traits say different things. <laughs> so so I'll have friends say, you know, you should teach at an HBCU girl because you would be blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, for real? I'm, I'm sure I would love it. Yeah. And I'm not dismissive. So so let me backtrack. I don't I don't know what type of, of, of job that I envision because, you know, when you get ready to go on the market, they tell you just, apply, you know, apply for everything, <laughs> you know, just because, you know, at the time and it's probably still the case, the market was just, you know, depending on your subfield, the market could be oversaturated and you kind of got to take what you can get. And sometimes, you know, so so they just apply for, you know, apply for anything or apply for everything rather. And so I hadn't really, I didn't have a really, you know, good sense of, of what, you know, type of institution I wanted to be at. Um, I did want to be closer to home, literally what was home, which was Southwest Mississippi. And so I ended up at, um, you know, a branch campus of Southern Miss. So um, it wasn't as large as the main campus. So I wasn't in a kind of typical college town. I enjoyed that time, and and I think it was a great space. It did allow me to be close to family. I'm no longer tied to that space anymore. So so family. Here's what I would say: like for different academics, 
you know, diff- they have different priorities. I've just always been a person who like family is probably, geography and family are the two most important things in in my life kind of outside of academia. So I was like, I can't go anywhere cold and I can't be anywhere that's more than driving distance or a short flight from home. And that's just, you know, I know that about myself. And so while some people have been like, you should apply for this job in New York because they saw potential. I knew those weren't, you know, it could have been a great institution, a great fit. And maybe I could have even had a snowball's chance in hell, like getting some of those. But it's not a, it, w- it wouldn't have been worth the time investment because I knew I either one wouldn't accept it or accept it and leave. And that would just be not very fruitful, like a waste of somebody's money, <laughs> a waste of somebody's academic search, right? And you just never know, right? I, I'm saying that about myself. Who knows? Maybe I would have gone to New York and, and you know, whatever. Maybe my path would have been changed forever. But then, Joe, you and I wouldn't have met. So I just happen to think that, you know, kismet is a thing. I, I can be um, one of my favorite podcasts, The Read. I think the way that um that's not kid fear it's um shoot i'm blanking on the name because i have have been in a podcast black hole i'm just now starting to get um crystal yeah one of the ways that crystal talks about is the woo-woo bitch i can be real like you know just strange and into you know crystals <laughs> and energy sometimes <laughs> so so the woo-woo in me is really like oh yeah it happened for a reason and this is yeah this is what happened you know so that's that's my I don't even know if I answered the question, but but that's what I what I think. <laughs> it was it was roundabout, but I, I asked it because I thought that was like when I was at Rice, I was like, this is exactly the sort of place that I want to be. And both you and I wound up at giant state flagships. And now that I'm here, I recognize that there are also tremendous advantages to gigantic schools. There are a lot more opportunities. There are there's a huge diversity of people and programs to work with. I don't think I could be at a campus with Asian American studies, LGBTQ studies, disability studies, and all those things interacting if there weren't also 50,000 people around to fill all of those, those positions. Um, so I, I originally imagined myself in, in one of those much more intimate teaching settings and then found uh, sort of drifting as I do through life that there are there are advantages to different places but sort of one of the other big differences between you and me is that I am probably the least geographically tethered person that I know Mo- my friends are scattered like just on, on the one hand really cool and then I have people to visit when I go places but also it means that there's no single place that I can think about as home I grew up assuming that my parents would retire to Taiwan and that's where all the rest of our family is. So, so there was never a, a place of return for me. So uh, that's actually how I wound up in Arkansas because it didn't, it didn't matter, you know, where I wound up, I didn't have any particular place in mind. Um, I guess that's also, that's also why maybe even the idea of homecoming has never been romanticized in my head. Yeah. I mean, so, so there's two things. So one part of the question that, that I don't think I answered, well, probably multiple parts that I didn't answer. But one of the things that I, I I didn't necessarily think that I would be at a large state institution. And I, and I don't, you know, I don't, um, I don't begrudge that decision at all. I think one of the things that has been nice about places that have been, I mean, one of the things that I, one of my abilities or skills, I think is, is building coalition. And I think that that is something that 
when I see, you know, if there's a paucity of, of, you know, whatever, you know, programming for black scholars or programming for, for, for single parents or, or whatever, you know, when I see a need, I try to fill it if it's within my power and I am not daunted by people telling me no. (laughs) So I will ask and you just have to tell me no, but I maintain and I could be wrong, but I am deep in Walmart territory. So I don't, I don't see why I should not be able to do anything that I I want to do. Someone should be able to pay for it. (laughs) That may be, that may be an illusion or a delusion that I am operating under, but nonetheless, <laughs> I believe it. And so so I've been trying to create the smaller college experience for my students in the way that I have, you know, tried to do, you know, try to create programming such that we feel like a community. Right. I think and that it's, it's been very successful. I've had only to point out that on the surface, have said this was we the don't best, have that much in common. So the best thing I've done in my we wouldn't have formed this and fast friendship. Like, wow. I've been thinking but, to myself, really? Um, ironically, <laughs> and maybe I feel so. On the one hand, like I'm, I'm deeply flattered, but on the other you know, hand, I'm like, man, and, what is your experience um, you know, been like? Like, I just feel I don't know. So, so yeah, that's so that's the one thing. But yeah, it's interesting, right? Because. I am very geographically tethered. And I'll tell you this this really funny thing. One of my best friends is in Columbus, Georgia. She's Chloe's godmother. And she is second generation Vietnamese American. She was a grad student at Tulane and she was living on the coast. And I, she at the time had like read my only published piece, which was on Dave Chappelle. And that's a whole other shit show that we got to have a talk about. <laughs> but Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock. And so we, we linked up through, we had an academic connection, right? She had read the piece. She knew that I was local. Hey, let's, let's hang out. So she was there and then I, I left, I think, and she was still on the coast. And so, you know, trying to maintain friendships is a thing for me and and I have so many sometimes that it gets to be difficult and challenging but we were trying to you know make that work over what's not all that far of a distance but when you got kids and life and so she was busy and I was busy but then ironically she moved to Columbus Georgia where my mom lives and where I used to live and so it's it's we've had a strange weird thing where we've been sort of like following each other and so now she's like I might move to I think it's like Pennsylvania or somewhere and I was thinking well shit I'm not visiting you there I'm sorry <laughs> you know it's, it's somewhere I don't know but I could visit somebody in like Baltimore but I you know I'm thinking okay you know I'll miss you <laughs> <laughs> yeah you you let her visit you you've got the nice weather anyway it's true. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, you, you did highlight a thing about you that I, I think is actually really rare among academics in that you are very proactive in programming things and also very good at event planning, which is which is not a skill that I see that abounds. Um, but I do also, I want to ask you this question, which is that we're told to say no, right, as, as junior faculty as often as possible. So how is it that you 
know what to take on or how is it that you strategically work with these things that you program in a way that doesn't take away too much from all the other things you need to be doing in life? <laughs> what? <laughs> That's a crazy <laughs> question. No, no. I, you know what? So so we're told them to say no and we and we should say no, right? And by and large, I try to say no and I have said no to a few things. I, I try not to say no to things that are, you know, involve like diversity efforts or actually I take that back. I, I, I do say no to like performative diversity gestures. Like I can't like meet up to do like photo ops or to be, you know, tokenized or something like that. And I'm not saying, I'm not, you know, trying to, um, you know, there's no judgment, right? And I'm not trying to insinuate that there's a, a university office that, that does that. I, I'm not, I, I'm not immersed enough in the DI, DEI work of this campus to to even make such a claim, even if I wanted to. I guess what I'm saying is that those things that seem to be kind of relatively shallow engagements with diversity, I pass those along. But the other thing is I don't really, so right now, or at least as of late, um, almost all of the programming things have been connected to my research. So it's like right now we're you know planning a visit to an HBCU. And I'm really hoping that I can get some good um, still photos and that could, you know, be re- be used in like the appendix of my book. And, you know, all of the kind of discussions are relevant to the book. Now, the problem with me, of course, which we've talked about this, like, <laughs> I don't know if it's a neurodivergent problem or if it's a procrastination problem or a little bit of both, right? Is that I have all of this, this, this wealth of knowledge. It's almost as if I could write this book just by like rambling, but I, I don't necessarily commit that wealth of knowledge to paper in a way that, you know, I think a, I know a lot of academics agonize about the written word and then suffer from like perfectionism. And in one of the things that, that we always say, or at least I say to graduate students is that like perfect is the enemy of good or perfect is the enemy of done and just like write it. But also <laughs> I can't just write, or I can write it, but then I'm like, I can't submit this because this is shitty and it has to be re- revised numerous times. So I'm, I'm getting a little bit off, but yeah, early on there were, there were, there was other programming and there were lectures that were, that was just great. And it was because I was interested in it and because I was good at it, which is to your point, not necessarily a skill that all academics possess. And, and I feel like if I'm good at a thing, I should do it. Now I'm like, hell no. <laughs> but if I'm good at it and it is relevant to the research that I am working on, and if it if it has an academic, but that's right now, I'm really trying to only do kind of academic programming, whereas I have in the past liked to do cultural planning, like an evening of jazz and poetry or, you know, an excursion where, you know, let's do like a nature writing unit and go out into, I, I you know, I can't, you know, it, it's not, if it's not a one-to-one correlation to what I'm teaching at the very moment or what I'm researching at the very moment, then I've had to kind of reject that, which is sad, but. It is, but one of the things that I did do love about this job. This is actually easier at Arkansas than it is at Texas, but probably because I haven't been here long enough to, to know how things work, but that we do have access to all these resources to build things that we, you know, uh, we wound up with 
Daniel Ortberg on campus because one of our colleagues in English emailed me and said, you know, it'd be really cool if he came and gave a reading. And so I was like, okay, like I'll email some people and see what, what we can do. And it was, it was really nice to, that's, that's the part of the institution. That's the advantage, right? That there are resources here that we can tap into and channel into hopefully our communities and the, and the people we want to, to lift up. Uh, I keep, I keep trying to think of a takeaway for this episode. I think most of that takeaway is, is that you are, much more optimistic than I am and able to find the best of the spaces that you're in uh, more so than me and my meandering through institutions and spaces. But I guess also a thing that we share in common is uh, this desire and need in this practice of, of continually making home in the spaces that we have uh, with the people that uh, we have around us. But what are your final thoughts on homecoming? Yeah, I, I, I almost dropped the cliche, home is where the heart is. <laughs> but I, I mean, I just think that home, that, that, that when you don't feel a sense of home, you have to create it, right? And that is, that is, I think, at least that has been, you know, my, it's really my personal and I think professional experience because I didn't necessarily feel a sense of home in Northwest Arkansas. Right. All of the all of the the colleagues that I, you know, have have been great and they've been wonderful, but I don't necessarily feel a community and I miss um, black people. I miss black programming. I miss black events. And because those don't exist and because I'm, you know, really trying to commit to some stability for my family. Right. And and also for my research. Right. And when you keep sort of moving and uprooting you know, you're, you inevitably, you know, there's a, there's this downtime, right? And there's this lag. So I'm trying not to disrupt, you know, my children's home life, but also my academic research right now. So, you know, I'm committed to, to trying to ground myself, to trying to have this be home, but I refuse to be miserable in my home. So it's like, you know, there's, there's, if, if something doesn't exist that you want to see, shit, you might just got, you might have to create it. <laughs> so is in practice, right? I think about home as as not in institutions, but but in the relationships. I think it's N.K. Jemison uh, who who wrote, "Home is what you take with you, not what you leave behind." And I, I really love that. Oh, that's great! I love Jemison. I think that is N.K. Jemison, actually. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's an excellent that's an excellent thought to 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 end on. Man, yeah, that's a wonderful quote. All right. Well, then that's it for today. Uh, If you have any thoughts or would like to reach us or have ideas for future episodes, we are at the unpack this podcast at gmail.com and we will hear from you next time.